You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here today. And we're joined now by Dr. Adolphus Belk. He's a professor of political science at Winthrop University, and he's also the chair of the faculty conference at Winthrop. So, Dr. Belk, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell us, uh, you know, how are you surviving this stay-at-home order and the, the work-from-home and the online remote instruction? How's, how's all that been going for you so far? I think that those of us who are in a position to continue to do our jobs from the safety mm-hmm. of our homes are in a privileged position. There are a lot of people who have been deemed essential workers, and they have to go in and work in some pretty scary circumstances. There are others whose work has been discontinued. They've been furloughed. They've been laid off. So I'm not going to complain about working from home when other people don't have the option to do so. And as far as the disruption is concerned, it's been more for my children because they have to you know, do school remotely and we're going through the e-learning, though homeschooling a five- and six-year-old won't stump us. Um, I do miss being on campus and miss being in the classroom, interacting with my colleagues. Um, that's one of the best parts of the job for me. So I miss that. But we found ways to connect and to keep people going. The thing that I've been saying all along is that under these circumstances, our students will remember us more for how we treat them than what we taught them. And so I'm trying to treat people with some compassion and show some grace. I think that's very well said. I know oftentimes I've talked about and thought about how fortunate we've been to be in a position that we oh, can absolutely that we can do this. And man, every time I go in a grocery store or think about uh, someone running, uh, you know, a gas station or something, wow, God bless those people for keeping those things going because it's so important. But uh, so very well said. I hope when we come out of this, people have a better understanding of what is essential and that not only do we show these people gratitude by thanking them, but maybe we try to improve their wages and the conditions of their work because they're doing some hard work right now. Absolutely. Tell us your Winthrop story, basically. How did you end up at Winthrop and, uh, you know, what's your experience been like there? So I am a Brooklyn, New York native and did undergraduate school at Syracuse Grad School at the University of Maryland. I'm looking at an announcement from the American Political Science Association about jobs. I see the job at Winthrop, and they're asking for someone to teach courses in American politics, African-American politics, and someone who might have an interest in helping to build and maybe one day even help lead a minor program in African-American studies. And as I read the job description, I said to myself aloud, I'd be a fool not to apply. Because it sounded like it was written by me for (laughs) me. So I call home, and I talk to my pop, and I'm like, hey, pop, um, you ever heard of Rock Hill? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know Rock Hill. It's like on the corner from Lancaster. My dad's a South Carolina native, born and raised in Lancaster. Nice. And so that was the beginning. Um, you know, I applied. I got the. I got a phone interview. Impressed enough during the phone interview to get invited down to campus and really enjoyed what I saw. Like I learned a long time ago as an undergrad that universities can be nasty places, and great professors, great extraordinary teachers sometimes don't get tenure. And being a great teacher seemed to work against them. So I, I knew I always wanted to be at a place where teaching would be valued and respected. Mm-hmm and that I'd have opportunity to grow into being a good teacher. And I felt like Winthrop was that sort of place. 
And then I remember during the campus visit, you know, being a New Yorker, going to school in the D.C. area, I think people were concerned about what they might regard as the South Carolina problem. And my, my trump card during all those conversations was, well, you know, my daddy knows from Lancaster. And I could see the ease come over people at that point because they knew I, I was familiar with the area and nothing down here would, would scare off a city kid, you know, that I was comfortable uh, being in the South. And, you know, I think um, there are a lot of opportunities for folk down here if they're willing to get over certain, um, certain stereotypes and biases against the South. Dr. Bell, tell us about the, the political science program and, and what kind of opportunities there might be for students who choose that as a major. Yeah, when I, when I think about our department, um, we are small, but we are mighty. Um, there are some really outstanding teachers in our department who enjoy working with students and helping them grow intellectually and, and personally. There are a lot of opportunities to enjoy instruction with faculty members in smaller class settings. There are opportunities to apply one's knowledge through things like the Model United Nations Conference, the Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research, which does the Winter Poll, as well as opportunities for internships with different types of organizations, ranging from law firms to political parties and all that sort of thing. One of the things we talk about is that the road to the White House comes through South Carolina, and it most certainly comes through Rock Hill and Winthrop University. And during the last several presidential election cycles, there have been all sorts of events that have been hosted on campus. So there are a lot of opportunities for students to see political science up close and to practice or engage in political science. And that's not only for those who study American politics, but also for those who are interested in public administration and public policy. The city manager for Rock Hill is a Winthrop graduate and at one point was an instructor in our department. And we have a relationship with the city where there's an internship opportunity every year. So there are opportunities then to get that practical, hands-on experience to apply what you learned in the classroom, whether you study American politics, comparative politics and international relations, public administration, political theory, so on and so forth. A lot of our students go into education. Some of them go on to pursue careers in law or the legal profession. But others have ended up doing really interesting things in the hospitality industry to um, intergovernmental relations and all sorts of things. So we, we offer students, I think, a holistic approach to the study of political science with a particular emphasis on getting them involved in doing research or having experiences that can help them to find a career path. And the, the last thing I'll say about that, a couple of years ago, uh, Dr. Chris Van Aller helped to develop a course called Political Science 101, Careers in Political Science. And we've really encouraged our new students, our first-year students, to take that course so they can have an understanding on the way in about all the possibilities that are available to them in our field of study, including but not limited to law school. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here, and we're speaking with Dr. Adolphus Belk, professor of political science at Winthrop University. Earlier you mentioned about South Carolina being on the map, on the road to the White House. Um, while we've got you here, I mean, what a great example of that this year where, you know, back before the South Carolina primary, it looked like Bernie Sanders is the front runner and, and Joe Biden's campaign is maybe on its way out. 
And then South Carolina comes and Jim Clyburn makes that endorsement of, of Joe Biden. And, you know, what's your impression of uh, what we saw happen in, in the political landscape and the primary on the Democratic side change this year just because of South Carolina? We've gone from a circumstance where the presidential race used to be a sprint. It's become a marathon. And if we think about what happens in the course of time leading up to the caucuses and the primaries, there are a lot of events. There are rallies. There are TV events with debates and town halls and all these things, right? But things can change rapidly once people start voting. And those first two contests gave Bernie Sanders some momentum. And even um, Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg had some momentum coming out of those first two contests. But then the theater turned to South Carolina, which looked much more like the Democratic Party coalition than, say, Iowa or New Hampshire. The critical thing was that four days out, uh, former Vice President Biden gets that that endorsement from Representative Clyburn. And some endorsements matter more than others. Someone of Representative Clyburn's stature, the first African-American sent to Congress from South Carolina since Reconstruction, a, an activist in the civil rights movement, both he and his former, um, rest in peace, were big activists in the South Carolina freedom movement, right? So that, that nominate, that, um, endorsement was absolutely critical and people took cues from it. And South Carolina African Americans delivered him a victory in this state and really provided some momentum for his campaign where he started winning in places afterward where he didn't have a campaign organization. So if it were not for African-American voters in South Carolina, that endorsement for Representative Clyburn, I doubt that Biden would be the president at this point. Well, um, dovetailing off that, you're talking about the African-American vote. Um, You're the past um, director of African-American studies here at Winthrop. Um, Tell us a little bit about that program and what it means um, for our students. I think that one of the... The great tragedies of American education at the K-12 level is that most students are not required to learn anything about non-white people. And even something like the freedom movement of the 1960s, which is really recent American history, is not required learning across the states. So you have people then who come into educational or professional settings with very little experience interacting with people who are different from them, given the high level of segregation that exists in our society, and given the nature of the academic programs and institutions that educated them. So while they might have a technical education in their fields of study, their professions, they lack a lot of basic knowledge about other Americans that could prove beneficial in those professional settings. So when we look at something like African-American studies, African-American studies is for everyone. I tell my black students that they don't walk into the room with, you know, full grown out of the head of Oshun with knowledge of the black experience. And I tell my white students, especially when they say things like, well, I can never understand what it's like to be African-American. I'm like, well, can you read? Can you listen? (laughs) Can you study? Because if you can do those things, you can gain insight. And so it's something that's for everyone. And when we deliver that, that material, and I teach Intro to African-American Studies, we don't start with slavery because no people begin their history in bondage. They were something else before they were that, right? That black people didn't become slaves because they were black. They were made black through the process of enslavement. 
So, you know, we, we deal with a lot of different things. There are stones to other fields of study because it's an interdisciplinary subject. And we try to have some fun with it along the way because people's history is about more than the misery and the hardships that they've endured. That those things don't define them exclusively, that even through those hardships, there's also joy, there's achievement, there's hope. Um, so when we deal with that subject, when we deliver that course and other courses in the program, we try to have that balance. I'd like to ask you one more question as it relates to race with the presidential election. You hear from so many people who are disappointed in the outcome of the primary when you had you know, such a large and, and pretty diverse field, you know, a number of women, um, people of color who were running in the primary, and then what we ended up with was a 70-year-old man who's white. W- what do you think is the reaction to people who are disappointed in that, and, and, and what's the discussion been like when you've had these types of discussions in class with your students? I think there's something deeply offensive when people sometimes assume that by not supporting these mm-hmm. candidates of color or maybe more progressive or liberal candidates, that African-American voters are somehow low-information voters and they made poor choices. People understand that the choices they make are limited to the choices that they have. By the time the South Carolina primary had rolled around, a lot of those diverse candidates who were actually really well-qualified uh, candidates, they were out of the race. And people are also voting based on what they see as likely outcomes. They're privileging defeating President Trump, and they want a candidate that they think could deliver on that. And that means a candidate who is appealing not only to African-American voters and other voters of color, but a candidate that appeals to enough of the white electorate in order to win some states and to win the Electoral College. So people were acting in a fashion that was really pragmatic based on their deep experiences with the United States. Notice that black voters didn't get excited about Barack Obama during the 2008 campaign until white voters demonstrated a willingness to support him. That black voters started shifting toward Obama only after he won the Iowa caucuses. And in the entire run-up before that, they were behind Hillary Clinton. So things change when people vote. People are voting based on pragmatic decisions. And when we look at some of the survey data from the Winter Poll and then from other polls, um, black voters are not feeling President Trump, and they'd like to see some change in November. Okay, that sounds really good. Um, Dr. Belk, we'd like to switch gears a little bit here. Um, can you tell us like one of your favorite Winthrop moments? I feel like my greatest professional successes, my greatest educational successes at Winthrop are not when recognition or awards my way, but it's when my graduates go out into the world and do great things and amazing things. So I always feel mm-hmm. most proud when something crosses my social media wire or it's my inbox about a student celebrating a professional or personal achievement. And it's been wonderful watching some of my graduates go on and run for and win public office, go to law school and, and pass bar examination, open their own practices, doing immigration work, or people get involved in campaigns or they come back to Rock Hill working in governmental relations. Um, so it's more than a single moment, but I like to see my students achieve. I will say the moment they hit me hardest, though, was a number of years ago. I did a promotional video for the university and 
they asked me to recommend a student to talk to, and I recommended a couple of students. They tracked one young woman down, and she mentioned that she grew up in a single-parent environment and, and locked her, her also kind of felt like a dad. And my thing is, um, I don't assume my students are broken and need to be fixed. I don't make assumptions about their personal lives. I am their professor first and foremost. And over time, friendships can evolve out of that. It was the first time somebody had kind of referred to me that way. And so one, it hit me like, wow, I'm old enough to be somebody's dad. Like, it's like an adult. <laughs> so that was the first blow. But the second blow was like, wow, um, that, that we really made a connection here. And that's a level of trust that is earned that you never, ever want to betray. Um, and so that's the moment that kind of hit me hardest about the significance of the work that we do as educators. One last thing we want to ask you about is, you know, a lot of people are passing the time and, and getting through these stay-at-home orders and, you know, dealing with things through music. Um, if we were going to ask you about uh, what you might be listening to on your pandemic playlist, what, what might you recommend to us? I've been setting up a long introduction from five to six-year-old to get to hip-hop. And a lot of that means introducing them to the source material that was sampled by those artists in the 80s and 90s. So they're listening to a lot of things that were ultimately incorporated into, you know, some of the classic hip-hop. So a lot of James Brown, Parliament, the Funkadelic, Otis Redding. Um, they're getting some um, the meters, you know, some of that really, really good stuff. Um, when it comes to my own rotation, I'm, I'm preparing for a podcast that I do with a couple of my, my buddies from undergrad. And they asked us, if you were introducing someone to hip-hop, you know, what album would you pick? And so I recommended Things Fall Apart by the Roots. And I've been listening to that a lot lately to get ready for that conversation. So that's absolutely um, my favorite hip-hop group, The Roots, but they... The interest run deep. Hip hop introduced me to a whole lot of other genres. So I listen to everything from jazz, blues, rhythm and blues, house music, funk, um, Afrobeat. You know, hip hop is served as a bridge to take me to a lot of different places. If you're going to pick one root song for us, what might it be? Cool. Like you get one song on the desert island for the next five years until the ship passes by to to rescue you. What would it be? I know it's a terrible, tough question, right? Well, it's a tough question, but if I need some good foot to go in to sustain me and mellow me out, you know, manage my stress level, I would say act two, the love of my life. Outstanding. Which was also on the Things Fall Apart album. Outstanding. Dr. Belk, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and go Eagles. That was Dr. Adolphus Belk, professor of political science at Winthrop University, and you're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day.